Well, good morning. That was lackluster. Good morning. I know I'm not Pastor Ed and I'm not standing on the floor, but I am wearing tacos instead of shoes. Ed asked me uh, at the 11 o'clock if I was going to wear my robe, and I said, well, the only robe I have is a bathrobe, so I'm not going to wear that. Uh, I will put on shoes and a coat, though, for that service. Let me pray for our time in the Word. God, thank you for the gift of another day. We thank you for your Word. We ask that it would be for us, as it says of itself, living and active. God, that through your Word you would pierce us to the deepest parts of who we are. We would not leave this place unchanged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Inspire us where we need to be inspired. God, all for your glory and for our good that we can become more like your son Jesus in whose name we pray these things. Amen. What are your waking moments like? When the alarm clock goes off at your house, what is the first thing that you think of? Or when you wake up, if you're beyond the time when you need an alarm clock in the morning because you don't have anything that you have to get up and do, when you wake up, what begins to fill your mind? What are those waking moments like? I can tell you that in my house, uh, I am the first one up. And well, I used to be the last one to go to bed, but I have teenage sons now, so they tend to shut the house down. But I'm the first one up because the house is quiet at that point in my day. And I enjoy my coffee and I sit down at the table with every intention of spending time in the word. But the first thing that I have to do is to pull out my journal for the day and write down everything that needs to be done for the day so that I can just get that out of my head in hopes of being then able to just rest in the presence of the Lord and pray over the things that come to mind and spend time in his word. And on my best days, that's where we end up. But I have to confess that that is not always how my morning turns out because things continue to come to mind. And, and being a person who is, is busy and whose life is full and a person whose time is often dictated by the things that our five kids are doing There are any number of things that run through my head in the morning. On the second day of school this year, the second day of school, when I pulled into the parking lot, this thought literally ran through my head. Gosh, that first week went fast. (laughs) And then I realized it was the second day of school. The psalmist writes of God's mercy and God's faithfulness and God's care over us that when we, when we lay ourselves down at night, we, we release the things of the day and God watches over us as we slumber and as we sleep. We are at our most vulnerable and our most dependent on the Lord when we are sleeping. And yet something happens between sleep and wake in which we go from deep utter dependence on God's faithfulness to carry us through the night to the place where all of a sudden we become self-sufficient, self-reliant, and it's up to us to conquer the work and the worry and the fear and the questions of the day. Paul in Colossians writes this instruction 
to the church there. In Colossians chapter three, he says, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. And I'm afraid that this is something that many of us fall short in. We might have moments where we set our minds on things above, but it's not long before those earthly things begin to take over and begin to consume our, our thinking and begin to consume our worry and stir in us fear and anxiety. And maybe we have felt that more in the past 18 months than we have at any other time in recent memory. We are in our fourth week of our All Things Made New series. And and this series, as you remember, is rooted in the scripture that we find in Revelation 21, where we see Jesus seated on the throne saying, behold, I make all things new. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And this is not something that we have to wait for. We will wait for Jesus's kingdom on this earth to be consummated and to be complete, but it's something that is in the process of happening right now, that God from the beginning has been at work to restore and to renew all things. And we're invited to be a part of that. And in our second week, we, we, we had to come to terms with the fact that the only way we can do this is by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not on our own strength. Because we, we quickly turn life with the Lord into something for us that is about checking the boxes, about keeping the rules, about living a certain way. And, and thank goodness for the witness of Paul who says, you know what, I used to live that way. But then I realized it's not about that. The law simply revealed to me the depth of my need. And it's by the power of the Holy Spirit that I'm able to live into this kingdom that Jesus came to establish And then last week, we, with that in mind, consider the fact that we are ambassadors of this hope that is made possible in the person of Christ, that we are given the opportunity to share that good news with other people, with the world around us. This is what has happened in my life. This this is the way, these are the ways that I experience this being made new and being renewed and being restored. And and let let me share that story with you. And there are moments when we are so focused on that that we want nothing more than for others to live into the hope that we have in Christ, but then the worries of a new day come. And and we find ourselves beginning to feel overwhelmed by what the world is throwing at us, beginning to feel overwhelmed by the headlines that we're reading, beginning to feel overwhelmed by what's happening in the lives of people that we care about, by what's happening in our own community. We, 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 We look at the things that are happening globally and nationally and locally. And and we lose sight of where this newness is and where things are being made new. And this morning, we find in the book of Lamentations the answer to this question, what, what, how do we hold these two things together? This kingdom that is, that is breaking in, this promise that all things are being made new, and at the same time, there seems to be little evidence of that in the world around us. Read Lamentations chapter three, beginning with verse 17. The author of Lamentations write, I have been deprived of peace. I've forgotten what prosperity is. So I say my splendor is gone and all that I had hoped from the Lord. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. 
Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Some context here for us to appreciate the significance of what is being written here in Lamentations chapter 3. There are some people that believe that perhaps it's Jeremiah that wrote Lamentations, although the evidence is not conclusive enough for us to say without a shadow of a doubt that, that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations, although that would be a good person to assign to this work. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, Jeremiah who spent decades warning the people of Jerusalem of God's coming wrath because of their unfaithfulness. And then Jeremiah, like the captain of the the Titanic who was strapped to the ship and had to ride it down with everybody else, like being tied to a locomotive that is riding out of control, who is witnessing and experiencing the devastation in the Babylonian invasion like everyone else in Jerusalem. And while we, we are not sure that it's Jeremiah, regardless, we know that the same is true for the author of Lamentations. They are experiencing the devastation and the pain and the suffering that everyone else in Jerusalem is suffering. They are not removed from it. They are very much a part of it. You see, God had warned his people for generations, for decades through the prophets. This is who I called you to be. This is who I told you I would be to you, for you, and with you. And this is how I want you to live life in response as a people set apart. And yet the problem is, as is our tendency, when we don't see things given to us immediately, when we don't experience being satisfied immediately, we begin to turn and look to other places. And so it wasn't long before the people of, of God began to look to other nations or other religions or the way that other people worshiped or the things that they, they practiced in their worship and said, well, maybe, maybe if we add this to our worship. Maybe if we do this thing, maybe if in addition to the God of Israel, we also worship this other God just to make sure that our bases are covered. And we know from scripture that God is a jealous God. And so God began to warn the people through the prophets, this is not who I've called you to be. Turn around, turn back to me. If you don't, You will experience judgment. You will experience punishment. You'll experience discipline. Discipline that God brings out of love for God's people. And as is our tendency, the people were stubborn and they refused to listen. And so they found themselves subject to God's judgment. To go back and read the first two chapters of of Lamentations, it's this survey of everything that is happening, of of the result of the Babylonian invasion. The the temple in Jerusalem was razed to the ground. The king's palace was turned to rubble. The the things that they held dear were taken. People were taken away. Families were were devastated. It would be like us standing at ground zero on 9-11 and surveying the loss and, and trying to express what we feel about that. And, and this is where we find the author of, of Lamentations, stripped down to the very rubble. You see, for the, the people of God, they, so much of their identity was, 
was rooted in, in the city. So much of their identity was rooted in the temple, in this place of worship. So much of their identity was rooted in the fact that they had a king and the king had a palace. And, 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 and in their minds, it allowed neighboring nations and other people to look at them and say, there must be something about those people of Israel. There must be something about those people of God. And yet the way that they lived didn't necessarily reflect what they hoped that others saw about them. And it makes me wonder, I think we have to be faced with the question, what are those things that we place our identity in and what happens when we find that those things are compromised? You know, so many of us over the past 18 months have had to reevaluate what we view as important in this world. So many of us have had to reevaluate our understanding of what it means to find worth in the work that we do or what it means to find worth in, in the way that we're able to spend our time or in the things that we're able to do because so much of that has changed. And so for the people of God to experience what is being experienced and what is being written about here in Lamentations, they find that their identity is lost. And in that, they begin to question who God is and whether or not God is, is even faithful, whether or not God is even present with them. And, and something begins to happen as we move into chapter three of Lamentations. The language goes from one who is kind of standing on the outside, a third person looking in to first person. The language becomes I. This is what I am feeling. This is what I am experiencing. It's important for us to understand that suffering is always personal. Suffering is always personal. Philip Graham Riken says it this way, Jeremiah's personal lament is a reminder of this, that suffering is always personal. When nations go through times of tragedy and tribulation, the greatest suffering always takes place at the individual level. As we said months ago, early on in this pandemic, one of the things that is true is that while we might not all be in the same boat, we are all in the same storm. We are all affected by what is happening in the world around us. We might not all feel it the same way, but all of us are affected by it. Suffering is always personal. And we've all felt that to some degree, whether in our own lives, whether on behalf of people around us, or on behalf of people that we don't even know because we see the things that are happening. There's something that we felt deeply about the brokenness and the pain and the hurt in this world. And so we find that perhaps we're able to begin to connect with the author of Lamentations, that we know something about pain and that we know something about suffering. And, and it would be easy for us to say, but you know, my suffering is not like the people in Afghanistan right now. My suffering is not like the people who have had home taken away, who have experienced loss as a result of, of storm. That, my suffering is not that way. And so then we might tend to discount our suffering when we compare it to the suffering of, of someone else. But one of the things that we find in Lamentations is that it gives us permission to name the things in life that are difficult, to name the things in life that cause us pain. Lamentations was written in an acrostic in which the first letter of, uh, or, or each letter of the Hebrew alphabet was, was used to begin each section of this, this poem, of this, this beautiful literary work. 
And it's believed that it was an attempt to take the, the turmoil and the chaos of suffering and somehow meticulously record it. This is what's happening. This is how this makes me feel. And I, I don't know if you are a journaler, if you're the type of person that, that likes to physically record your thoughts and the things that are happening, or if in your, your prayer life you are so meticulous that you recount to God the things that you're feeling. But, but this gives us permission to do just that. I wonder how God might begin to work in our hearts or, or how might God might begin to reveal things to us if we were to take the time and be disciplined enough to record life in this way. I wonder how many of us have taken the time to process what the past 18 months have been for us. We still find ourselves kind of swept up in the rhythm of life, even though it looks a little different now. We're still subject to the tide of, of the, the way that culture moves and, and, and the way that, that this world operates. But I wonder if we've taken the time to name the things about it that have been difficult. To name the places where we feel like we've experienced loss, to ask the questions that we'll see in a minute that the, the author of Lamentations is asking of God. to even dare to assign to God, maybe even blame for what's happening. And, and I know that that might make some of us uneasy, right? Because we, who are we to assign blame to God? But I wanna give you hope in one thing that God is big enough to take our complaints. God is big enough to take our questions and our doubt and even to say to God, why did you do this? Because when we're willing to be honest with God about what we're feeling, we give God the space to move, we give God the space to speak, and we even give God the space to correct. It's no different in, than in our relationships with others. How often have we missed the opportunity to work through something with someone because we're unwilling to share with them how we really feel? And so maybe if nothing else, Lamentations this morning gives us permission to be honest, to be honest with God. So we find now that the author of Lamentations, as life has been stripped away, life as it was known has been reduced to rubble. And the dust has not even yet settled. Something happens. In the midst of this book of recording such great loss, in the midst of such darkness, a light breaks in. I remember my affliction and my wandering, the bitterness and the gall. I will remember them and my soul is downcast within me. Yet, this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion. Therefore, I will wait for him. How is it that in the face of such suffering, that in the midst of such darkness, the author of Lamentations sees a light and is willing to declare something of God's goodness and God's faithfulness in the face of such despair. 
right? This is not like when, when a child skins their knee and you just, you know, hand them a lollipop and say, hey, it's okay. It, it's not like patting them on the back and telling them to get up and, and, and you, know, brush them, you know, brush it off and let's move on. Right, this is not, God just wants you to be happy. And, and I think for so many of us, that's, we have this tendency to, to equate Christianity with, if, if you're a follower of Christ, then, then it's a lack, shows a lack of faith to name suffering. It shows a lack of faith to question. It shows a lack of faith to name the places where you feel like God is absent. I, I would counter that and go so far as to say perhaps it shows more faith to be honest about those things because when we allow everything to be stripped away we're only left with life from a place of humility only left to acknowledge everything that I placed my hope in God that was apart from you while those things might be good, while they might be enjoyable, while there might be some degree of fulfillment in them, none of those things will last. Yet there is one thing that does. It's your love and your mercy and your faithfulness. There's something in the suffering, something in the devastation, something in the carrying out of God's judgment that the author of Lamentations looked at and realized, wait, if... God's judgment is being carried out against us, it must mean that God is still present with us. And because of that, because this is God being true to God's word, God carrying out what God said he was going to do, then perhaps this doesn't negate the promises that God has made. Perhaps this doesn't negate the promises going all the way back to Abraham that through Abraham God would make a great nation and would bless the world. That perhaps this doesn't negate the promises that would have been given to Moses. That perhaps this doesn't negate the promises that would have been given to David. That perhaps this doesn't negate any of God's promises. This is simply God being faithful to who God is. Allowing his people to experience the sting of suffering so they might be reduced to a place of humility where the only thing that they are left to cling to is God's goodness and God's faithfulness. We have this tendency to say to people who are going through difficult times, God will not give you more than you can handle, which is just bad bumper sticker theology. God is perfectly willing to give you more than you can handle. because God is willing for you to feel the depth of your need for him. If we assume that everything that comes our way is something that we can handle, then we find we have little need for God this side of eternity. And if God, if God is willing to allow us to walk through things that we just feel like, I don't know if I can do this another day and yet another day comes, we might just be willing to reach out and allow God to be the one who carries us through it, who gives us the wisdom in the face of questions, who gives us even the flicker of faith in the face of doubt. 
You see, what we find here in the author of Lamentations is perspective. If we continue to focus on the pain and on the brokenness and on the things that are wrong, then ultimately we are no good to anyone and, and, and perhaps even harmful to, to ourselves. Yet if we are willing to name the things that are difficult about life and instead turn our focus to the Lord, then something about our perspective begins to change begins to shift. Choosing to not focus on our afflictions and on our challenges does not negate the fact that they are real. We can name them, we can know that they're there, but we can shift our gaze and our focus to a God who is faithful, to a God who knows what it is to suffer in the person of Jesus, to a God who knows what it is to carry weight and affliction and pain out of a place of love for his crown jewel of creation, humanity, who was created in God's image. Yet, the author says, this I call to mind. In the face of all this, this I call to mind. And therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed. What are the places in your life where you can point to evidence of God's great love for you? What are places in your life where you can point to the fact that God's mercies are new every morning? With my family, when, you know, having five children, every year that we, we, we make it through a school year without any like major health concerns, we feel like it is a win because the, the, the chances are exponential for us to bring something home. When the children were younger, it was like sickness from you know, October through March. And, and I remember the, one of the years that we had the opportunity to take them to Disney, I look over and one of my kids is licking a hand railing and I'm thinking, we might as well just all do that. But, but I've, I, I know that feeling of, of being up at night with a sick child and, and just, just wanting, being desperate for, for the dawn of another day. Not that that would alleviate the sickness, not that the sickness would go away, but just to know that another day had come because we're not really promised any of them. So where is it that you have seen God's mercy in the rising of the sun one more time? How is it that you can recount to yourself, God, these are the places in my life that I've seen your love, that I've seen your compassion, that I've seen your faithfulness and your patience. God, your, your faithfulness is new again today. We are less than a week away from, from remembering the 20th anniversary of, of 9-11, a devastating day in the course of our country's history. Which means that I'm not too many days away from celebrating my 20th wedding anniversary. My wife and I were married on September 15th, four days after 9-11 standing right here in this space, committing our lives to one another in front of the Lord. But I remember that feeling as we approached our, our, our wedding rehearsal and I remember reaching out to 
the pastor who married us, a man who's dear to me, who discipled me for, for, for years in college and, and then years after that and saying, I, I don't know how I feel about having a wedding in the face of you know, what, what we're going through of all that's happened. And he was so wise and he said, you, he said, I get that. And it's okay to feel that way. There's a lot of weight right now that we all feel. But perhaps the opportunity to celebrate something is a gift. Perhaps it is a picture of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. Perhaps to give the people who will be in attendance an opportunity to celebrate that the sun has come up one more day and that God is still at work and that God is still good. Perhaps that's God's mercy. And it completely reshaped the way that we saw that evening and that weekend to see it as an opportunity of God's faithfulness and God's goodness. You see, God is 100% faithful 100% of the time. Our inability to see that does not negate the fact that it's true. And yet, and sometimes I, I, I believe that, that one of the things that, that hinders us from experiencing and seeing God's faithfulness is our unwillingness to step out in faith. Can we call God faithful if we're not willing to trust him? Can we call God faithful if we're not willing to put ourselves in a place where we are dependent on God's faithfulness? Maybe this week it's about naming the things in life that are difficult, naming the way that it makes you feel and then asking, God, would you reveal to me the places that you are faithful? Would you reveal to me the places that you are good? Would you reveal to me where your mercies are new every morning? With the rising of the sun one more time, an opportunity for us to testify to God's goodness and to God's faithfulness. God is not shift. God is not like shifting shadows as James says in the first chapter of his letter. And as I read that and I thought about that, I thought about my, my years in, in youth ministry. Ben, maybe you remember this and you experienced this in, in, in your time in youth ministry, but one of the things that, that we did was to have junior high Bible study. And, and listen, in that, those early years of adolescence, like it is, I mean, wow. There's a lot happening in those young people all at the same time. And then you get a room full of them together who are all experiencing the same things. It, it, you never know what you're gonna get. And, and so one week, you know, the, the kids would walk over from Hardin Park and, and there'd be a group and they're all friends, like best friends. And then the next week, the same group walks over and only one of them is not best friends with another one. And, and I, I would say, well, what, what happened? Why, what, I thought you, last week y'all were best friends. Well, yeah, but she talked to a girl who likes a guy that I like. What did she say to her? She asked her for a pencil. <laughs> we, are, we are fickle people. And while we might assign that to adolescence, if we're honest with ourselves, we can be like shifting shadows as well. And yet the promises of scripture, over 7,000 promises made to humanity in scripture. The promises in scripture reveal to us that God is not a shifting shadow. That God is faithful 
God is just, yes. But even in God's justice, there's mercy. Mercy that God longs for us to experience and to see each day. Your mercies are new every morning. Mercies for what? Mercies for that day. Because we're not promised anything beyond it. Mercies for the day at hand. Everything that we need to make it through today. That we might stand on the promises of God. Promises like there's nothing that we can do that will place us outside of God's love for us. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus from Romans chapter eight. From the Psalms, he who watches over you neither sleeps nor slumbers. Yea, though I'll walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. God is not shift like the shadows. God's mercy for us is new every morning. Maybe the thing that we do when we leave here today is to write these six words down. His mercies are new every morning and and place them somewhere where we will see them at the start of every day. To begin each day with that perspective in the face of everything that's going on, in the face of whatever worry you're carrying, in the face of whatever doubt or whatever fear or whatever hurt in your own life or life on, be- on behalf of someone else, to be able to look at that promise and say his mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Great is your faithfulness. Friends, we don't see that displayed any more clearly than we do in the gift that was given to us in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. The greatest example of God's mercy, God's steadfast love, that chesed, as Ed talked about in here, several weeks ago, that covenant love, that love that is not dependent on our ability to respond to it or our ability to love in the same way in return. There is no place that it is more perfectly displayed than in the person of Jesus. His mercies are new every morning. Friends, at the base level, what that means for us is that we are not treated as our sins deserve. Yet we are treated with compassion and patience and faithfulness and kindness and love. Amen.